0: I see kids who are just, they're just handled and managed and all they have to do is sit there and be driven from place to place. And we do have high expectations. They have to work hard, you know, to get the right grades that we want them to have. And they have to be on that team that we want them to be on. So they get into the right college or whatever. I mean, it's not like they're lazy, but there is so much of their lives that is managed, planned, constructed, perfected, fixed, handled for them. And that deprives them of feeling the basic agency humans need to have in order to be healthy and whole humans. Welcome to
1: Till Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm Debbie Reber, your host, and my guest today is the brilliant Julie lithcott Haymes. Julie is one of those guests I've been wanting to bring on the show pretty much since I first launched this podcast. So, I am thrilled to finally be bringing this interview to you. And if Julie's name's familiar, it may be because she's the author of the New York Times best-selling and in my opinion majorly game-changing in the parenting space book, How to Raise an Adult. She wrote it after noticing that prospective college students at Stanford, where she was the dean of admissions, we're being overparented, and we're lacking the resources to develop the resilience, resourcefulness, and the inner determination necessary for success. Today, Julie and I are going to talk about what it takes for a child to be successful, looking at how we define success itself along the way, and what we as parents can do to help our child develop the agency they need to become self-actualized adults. And a few things from Julie's bio. Julie's book, How to Raise an Adult, has been published in over two dozen countries and gave rise to a TED Talk that became one of the top TED Talks of 2016 with over three and a half million views. Most recently, she authored the book Real American, a memoir examining racism through Julie's experience as a black and biracial person. Her work has appeared in many media outlets, including the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, the Atlantic, Parents, PBS NewsHour, CBS This Morning, Good Morning America, on and on. So I loved having this conversation with Julie. I am still noodling on the many takeaways and aha moments I experienced. I hope you get a lot out of it. And before I get to my conversation with Julie, a quick reminder that my book Differently Wired is newly available as an audiobook, narrated by yours truly. Yes, it's true. I had to audition to get the job, but I was able to read the book and it was a lot of fun and also a lot of work, but I'm really happy with how it turned out. So to listen to Differently Wired, visit amazon.com. You can download it using Audible. You can also listen to a sample if you want to see what it sounds like. And if you'd like to watch the TEDx talk I gave in Amsterdam at the end of 2018 called Why the Future Will Be Differently Wired, you can find it on the homepage of Tilt Parenting at tiltparenting.com. I wrote the speech with a broader audience in mind as I really wanted to challenge employers and colleagues and community members and other people in our lives who might not be raising differently wired kids to consider the importance of neurodivergence and to consider the importance of our kids in our society. So I would love your help spreading the word to these audiences. So please check it out, share it on your social media, your blogs, however we can get the word out there. So thank you so much for considering that. And one last quick announcement, I wanted to let you know that Tilt Parenting is now available on Spotify. So if you are someone who, like me, likes to put on playlists on Spotify, right now I'm listening to coffee shop music, sometimes I listen to Broadway soundtrack, sometimes I listen to music from the show Glee, whatever I'm in the mood for, but you can also now find podcasts there and Tilt Parenting was recently added. So just one more place to tap into the conversation. Okay, I think that's enough announcements for today. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Julie Lithcott-Hames. Hi, Julie, welcome to the podcast. Debbie, thanks for having me. Well, I have to um, just confess something. And that is that I started this podcast about almost three years ago. And I had this list of dream guests that I wanted to have on the show. And you were on that list. Way no way. When, yes. That's so awesome. <laughs> it's true. So this is a very uh, full circle moment for me. I'm very excited to wow. just share your your work with my listeners.
0: Well, thanks. That means a great deal. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, my pleasure, and there's so much to talk about. I have way too many questions, so I want to dive in. That's great
0: because I'm really long-winded. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, my hunch is that it, you're gonna end up answering a lot of my questions in your answer. So I think it'll it'll even out. But just as a way of introducing yourself, um, give us kind of the the condensed version of kind of who you are as a parent, your work in the world, and You know, We're specifically talking about your book, How to Raise an Adult, today. So if you can just talk talk a little bit about the context for
0: writing that book. Sure. I'm 51. I'm a mom in Silicon Valley, California. I've got a 19-year-old son and a 17-year-old daughter. For many years, I was the dean of freshmen uh, right up the street from my house at Stanford University. And in that role, over the course of 10 years, I grew really concerned about the number of undergraduates who seemed very reliant on their parents to handle the day-to-day tasks of life that college students had always been able to handle in the past, but now somehow no longer could. Not all my students, but a growing number every year. Not just a Stanford problem. I was seeing at Stanford what administrators and faculty were seeing all over the country. But what I saw on my campus concerned me enough to want to investigate what was going on and to try to tell parents, hey, back off. It's okay. Your, your son or daughter is 18, 19, 20. They can do this. They can talk to faculty on their own. They can resolve their own roommate disputes. They don't need you to be checking their homework. And then one day after years of kind of preaching this back off message, I came home to dinner with my own family and uh, leaned over my 10-year-old son's plate and began cutting his meat and there was a big aha moment for me in that I realized that the problem I was seeing on my college campus was a problem I was complicit in at the parent on the parenting side. I was doing too much for my 10-year-old, which meant I wasn't going to be able to let go of him at 18 when he went off to a campus somewhere. So that dual vantage point of being a parent trying to do the best for my kids and a college dean working with other people's grown-up kids uh, allowed me to put together the thesis for how to raise an adult, my book on the harm of helicopter parenting.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I remember when it came out and it so resonated with me. I also think it was around the time that Jessica Leahy's book came out. exactly. Yeah, so they seemed like such great companion pieces. And I definitely... You know, and I, I had Jessica on the show, and we talked about this. I had so many yes, yes moments, yeah. you know reading your book. And one of the things and i and I want to get into more in depthly here is that when I read books like that, and when i when I know, you know what I hear from my audience is that we always have this yes, but moment because you know when you're raising a differently wired kid who might be on a delayed timeline or their trajectory just looks different we kind of find ourselves stuck in this place of, okay, but how do we do this? Like, when are we overstepping? When When do we step back? What does this actually look like? Because we can't really compare, you know, with their same age peers necessarily. So I want to talk with you. Let's take a step back. I want to talk with you about fear. That's something that you talk a lot about. That's something that is pervasive in my community of parents fear about, you know, everything what this path is going to look like, will our child be able to launch all of these things. Can you talk about what you discovered about fear-based parenting and what that where that comes from?
0: Well, you know, you've you've hit the nail on the head uh, when attributing cause to our method of parenting these days. So, I say that that we are parenting these days from a place of love. Ego and fear. And, you know, the fear is this sense that um, in this globalized world, this 21st century economy with robots and artificial intelligence, a 24 7, 365 news cycle that's constantly buzzing us in our pocket, in our hand, we're just hyper aware of everything that's happening everywhere in the world. There are a lot of things that frighten us. And we let that fear animate our behaviors as parents. There's a, there's a wonderful evolutionary biologist named Robert Sapolsky, who's written the book Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, presumably in contrast to humans who do get ulcers. And he says that this news cycle, for example, we can hear about everything going on in the world and abduction, you know, 3,000 miles away makes us feel our child is at risk Unlike our ancestors who lived in caves, when their fight or flight response was activated when the saber-toothed tiger came by, you know they either fled the tiger, fought the tiger and won, or died. With us, when the equivalent, the modern equivalent of the saber-toothed tiger arises, we can't flee from it because it's not really in our present moment. We're reading about it. It's, it's coming in on our phones. We can't flee it. It's kind of always there. We can't fight it. It's just always there. This thing we can't fight. It's information rather than an actual thing to confront. And it sort of looms out there. It looms in our minds. And it's so our our fight or flight response is activated, but we never get the relief of the thing being over. So there's a heck of a lot of fear. And um, we've decided it's best if we control our kids' environment, control our kids' efforts, control our kids' outcomes, uh, argue with teachers, argue with coaches, handle the deadlines, bring the forgotten stuff. Like we're, our fear is if I don't do those things, my kid won't make it. And in the short term, we help our kids by handling the stuff of life for them. But in the long term, if we've always been the handler, then they literally have not learned how to handle things for themselves. And while their bodies grow from being child bodies to adult bodies, we have deprived them of building the skills that that adult is going to need to have in order to fend for themselves out in the world. So it's sort of this paradox that is excruciating but necessary for us to understand and implement. We actually have to back farther and farther away from our kids as they age so that they can do more and more for themselves. And yes, sometimes falter, sometimes fall, sometimes experience a hurt or an embarrassment or a shame, um, something that will teach them, oh, I shouldn't do it that way. I need to do it differently next time. This is essentially, if this is what it boils down to, how to raise a kid to be that healthy adult. We have to give them a longer and longer leash every year instead of pretending that they're safe and okay and fine when we're holding them on our tight leash forever.
1: So what would you say to parents who are listening to this and are thinking, yes, I, I know I need to do this, and I'm afraid that if I step back, even in little ways, my child's world might come crumbling down. Like, I don't know how to frame this question, but... Maybe talk a little bit about what's an okay kind of hurt to go through and what isn't? like are there criteria that you have in terms of things that we can that where we need to step in and and areas where it's okay to kind of let them falter?
0: Yeah, absolutely. A big picture, I would say that these days we've decided everything is a potential disaster. <laughs> everything is potentially harming them for life. And so we've decided everything requires our vigilant scrutiny and control and our handling. So what we've got to do is kind of renorm things. We've got to stop thinking of everything as a saber-toothed tiger that's going to kill our children and see most things as important life experiences they need to have because they teach our kid lessons that make them stronger and smarter out there in the world. I'm flipping through my book as I say this because I actually have some examples. So. Um, I actually found a great list of things we're supposed to let our kids experience. I found it in someone else's book, and I wrote them and asked them for permission to reprint it in mine. So here we go. For anyone who has had to raise an adult, this is on page two thirty nine in the chapter "Normalized Struggle." It's about how to let the bad things happen, and it's a list called "Mistakes and Curveballs You Must Let Your Kid Experience." And I got this from Michael Anderson and Tim Johansson. This is uh, Anderson is a psychologist. Johansson is a pediatrician in Minneapolis, both of them. They wrote a book in 2013 called GIST, The Essence of Raising Life-Ready Kids. And they had this great list, mistakes and curveballs you must let your kid experience. And I'm just going to read them. Not being invited to a birthday party. Experiencing the death of a pet. Breaking a valuable vase. Working hard on a paper and still getting a poor grade. Having a car breakdown away from home seeing the tree he planted die, being told that a class or camp is full, getting detention, missing a show because she was helping grandma, having a fender bender, being blamed for something he didn't do, having an event canceled because someone else misbehaved, being fired from a job, not making the varsity team, coming in last at something, being hit by another kid, rejecting something he had been taught, deeply regretting saying something she can't take back, not being invited when friends are going out, being picked last for neighborhood kickball. Now, Debbie, I don't know about you, but I think my blood pressure just went up a (laughs) little bit in just reading this list. Okay. Right. None of us wants our kids to experience any of those things. And in some ways I'm thinking, wow, this feels so out of date. This was written five years ago and it already feels like some of those things are absolutely intolerable for us as parents, like getting hit by another kid. But let's break that down. Getting hit when you're three in a sandbox at preschool is different than getting punched when you're, you know, Mm -hmm. in middle school or high school. The three-year-old isn't intentionally setting out to harm you. The three-year-old isn't developmentally capable of really formulating that, you know, I'm going to harm you uh, kind of mindset. Um, They shouldn't hit, but is it bullying? No. A three-year-old isn't capable of bullying. A 13-year-old is capable of bullying. We tend to call everything that results in the slightest harm bullying. Mm -hmm. And we've got to get better at saying, you know, what's not very pleasant, but still normal within childhood versus actual pathological bullying. You know, we have to be willing to tolerate that. For our children to grow and learn to socialize with other kids and learn to advocate for themselves in the classroom and with adults, to be able to talk to a coach, to be able to get a job one day, to be able to manage their own deadlines and keep track of their own belongings, they have to do the work of trying out those things and failing a little bit and talking with us about what might you do differently next time, trying again, and so on. They have to have so many attempts at trying something, anything, before they're going to be good at it. So we, we actually have to want this for them. What Michael Anderson and Tim Johansson say is, the things on this list might make you wince, which turns out to be kind of the point. Not only must you let your kids experience these things, you're supposed to nod your head and say silently to yourself, perfect. That's perfect. It's just what he or she needed to happen at least once in his childhood.
1: We'll be right back after this quick break. There's so much more to maintaining a healthy gut microbiome than eating a balanced and healthy diet, travel, certain medications, and of course, something many of us have plenty of in our daily life, stress, are just some of the other factors that can totally throw off our systems. Enter ritual. They created Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Their supplement includes two of the world's most clinically studied probiotic strains to support the relief of mild and occasional bloating, gas, and diarrhea. I like Symbiotic Plus because it delivers all this goodness in one single nested minty delayed-released capsule designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract and because the capsules don't require refrigeration i just keep them on my desk so that i get that helpful visual cue every morning plus they're easy to bring with me when i travel there's no more shame in your gut game symbiotic plus and ritual are here to celebrate not hide your insides get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com/tilt start ritual or add symbiotic plus to your subscription today that's ritual.com/tilt for 25% off It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com parenting. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com parenting. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com parenting. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance.
0: So let me speak now directly to those of us who have kids with some kind of learning differences. Uh, My own son, my eldest has ADHD, inattentive type. And uh, I have his permission to talk about this. I wrote about it in the book. So it can make it really hard for him to focus and get things done. And as a parent with a kid who struggles with that, you know, I can do everything for him. I can make sure he gets everything done by being there to basically beat a stimulus that reminds him constantly or that puts his hand on that pencil and gets him to start writing something. But we can cross a line. By effectively becoming our child's executive function, if our kid's executive function is delayed in developing, we can cross a line by becoming their executive function. And that is a step too far because then they'll be forever reliant upon us and we've prevented their own little executive function capacities from developing, 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 and finally being where they need to be. We're in such a hurry for our child to have it all figured out and to be able to kind of keep up and keep track and all of that. We end up doing it for them, depriving them of the opportunity to ever be able to do it for themselves. So it's all fine lines, but it's, you know, we, we have to accept our kids got ADD. We have to take an interest in or whatever it is, take an interest in. Okay, well, what do the experts tell me my kids should be able to do at this age and stage given the disability? And how can I support my kid in being as capable as she or he can be given the disability? And frankly, what I hear from parents of kids who are contending with a disability is that they learn earlier than other parents. Hey, whatever plans I'd had when I got pregnant, you know, my partner got pregnant whatever plans i had this kid's going to be a champion swimmer this kid's going to be a brain surgeon this kid's going to you know be an investment banker this kid's going to be president of whatever you know when the dis- when you discover your kid has a significant disability you get humble and you realize oh hey all those plans i had well they're not so relevant right now what's relevant is i've got a kid who's got some things they're contending with some real struggles perhaps and i got to take an interest in this kid and what she or he can do as opposed to what I wish they might've been in a perfect world. Parents of kids with disabilities learn that lesson, which is one of humility and acceptance far sooner than parents of kids developing typically who might hold out that dream for 18, 20, 25, 30 years. Oh, I want my kid to be a this. And if only I push them hard enough or if only I withhold my love long enough, my kid will turn into that because they'll want to please me, right? Mm
2: -hmm. Those
0: of us whose kids contend with these challenges, learn or we should learn earlier, hey, wait a minute, we've been throwing a curveball, you know, and how can I support my kid in being the best they are capable of being instead of dragging them down some path, you know, with my own effort, largely a part of it toward Mm -hmm. the future I had hoped the kid would have.
1: Yeah. Does that make sense? It makes so much sense. It's something that I believe so deeply is one of the many gifts of these kids is they do disrupt our plans so much that we can, as you said, at a much younger or earlier age in their journey, redefine what success looks like. And that is so much more freeing. It can still be scary. I don't, you know, I still get caught up on the timelines and where should my, you know, my son's 14, where should he be in relation to his peers and that kind of thing. But it does force you to kind of Open up your mind a little bit about about what this might look like, and letting go of what you thought it was going to look like. Yeah. Do you want to? Yeah. First of all, the executive functioning thing, too. Yes, um, that is such a great reminder that we can we can cross that line. I don't think I've ever heard it put that way, and I think that's something probably a lot of listeners are nodding their heads and saying, "Yeah, I'm I'm walking that tightrope right now." I wanted to talk about success a little bit because, you know, I just rewatched your TED talk, which is amazing. It's it's Thank great, you. listeners. I'll leave a link on the show notes. You should Thank definitely you. check it out. But I really love the way you talk about, you know, how important it is that we reconsider what success looks like. Can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah. Um, so here I am in Palo Alto, California, which is a hotbed of overparenting, where the definition of success put forth to kids is incredibly limited and narrow and elitist. And I think kids in our community feel, hey, in order to be successful, I've got to have a company that has an initial public offering. By the time I'm 25, I've got to drive a Tesla. I've got to go to one of those big brand name universities. I've got to invent something the world has never seen before. I mean, it sounds absurd, but these are the kinds of, of things that are happening in the Palo Alto area and the Bay Area As are happening in other areas with great technological advancement and so on. And our kids grow up thinking, that's what I have to do to matter to Mm -hmm. my family, to my peers, to the world. So I hear teenagers talking about how am I gonna make my big contribution to the world? You know, when I was a teenager, what I was most concerned about, and I did work hard and I did study hard and do well in school, but I was most concerned about my relationship with my boyfriend, Mm -hmm. you know? My teenagers are worried about making an impact on the planet, you know? So, all right. So, in my TED Talk, I I try to, to make this point that success in life isn't about the high grades and the high scores and all of the activities and sports and accolades and awards and leadership and community service, which is the suite of things we expect a teenager today to stuff into their childhood in order to have a college application that will impress a college dean at one of these highly selective places that's requiring a completely stuffed to the hilt, perfect, flawless childhood. Those things aren't actually the markers for success in life. Turns out there's a long study of humans that was conducted that is still ongoing that showed that the humans who were professionally successful at the end of their lives, you look back and you can kind of see the, the causal factors or the correlations. The people who were professionally successful had done chores as a child. And I tell this, and I, when I tell it in front of live audiences, some people clap and some people gasp. And the people <laughs> clap and are like, Yep, my kid's got chores. And the people gasping are like, Oh no, I've been stuffing my kid's childhood with all of this enrichment. You know, it's not Kumon, it's the vacuum, is the <laughs> joke. Like, yeah, you think you're giving your child everything they need by, you know, teaching them Mozart in your womb and making sure they know algebra by the time they're five. But it turns out, that those who are professionally successful did chores as a child. And if you are exchanging all of that enrichment for the expectation that a child helps out on a daily basis at home, you are undermining your kids' chances for thriving in the workplace. Mm -hmm. So the good news there is we can just fix that in a moment. You can just turn that around today. The second thing I talk about (laughs) in that talk is that happiness in life comes from love. So our kids have to be Unconditionally loved at home, so they have a chance of actually loving themselves, so they have a chance of getting out there in the world and giving and receiving love to and from their fellow humans. So the talk basically boils down to chores and love. These are the foundational building block items that their childhood must rest upon so that they can ultimately have that healthy, successful, joyful, meaningful, purposeful adult life. We want to have, we want to have for them. We want them to have.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I will admit, and I'm again, I'm sure listeners are like, uh huh. You know, with with the chores thing, I fall into this trap of not wanting to get pushback because, you know, especially when my son was younger, I was just constantly trying to keep peace because when he would get dysregulated, it was really just sucked honestly for all of us it was big emotions it was meltdowns and it was just easier right for for me and i'm sure for many parents out there to just not go there and yeah. I, and now i've got this 14 year old where as i'm as we're recording this i'm i'm painting this house that we're trying to move into in new jersey and my son's with his grandparents now but was here last weekend and i gave him a screwdriver. And I was like, it's time to take down the window treatments. And it really put him out. And I was like, tough toenails, dude. But it, you know, I feel like I'm having to start over training him uh, almost. Is that what we need to do? Just say, okay, we went down the wrong road and we're going to get on a different path right now.
0: I love your phrase, tough toenails. I've never heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> Some of your listeners are chuckling along with me. Um, before I answer that question. Tell me how the screwdriver effort turned out.
1: Well, it hurt his hand. Like there was a lot of complaining, um, especially when he thought he was done. I'm like, oh, actually, there's a whole other floor that you need to do. You know, so there was a lot of griping, but he did it. Um, I thanked him. He said, you're welcome. And then he kind of went on with his day. So ultimately, it, it turned out just fine. It was just a Good. little grumbling.
0: So that's the lesson. Yeah, there's going to be some grumbling. And the later we start asking kids to pitch in, the more grumbling there will be. I didn't realize chores mattered until I started doing the research for my book. And so when I laid it on my kids who were, I don't know, 12 and 10 at the time, I I like to say what they lacked in chore skills they made up for with analytical reasoning. If (laughs) chores are so important, why haven't we been doing them so far? Why haven't we been doing them all along, mom? And you have to own up to it we these days like to be our kids' friends, their best friend. We hate to create conflict. So we want to say, Oh, I'm sorry, honey. I know you don't want to do chores. I don't want to do chores, but there's this expert out there that says chores are really important. So if you wouldn't mind, it would really be nice, right? All of this BS language. Mm -hmm. Okay. That just undermines our authority as parents. Don't do any of that. Instead you say, if you're instilling chores into the family life late, you say, you know what? I've, realize you guys should have been doing chores for some time now. Chores are an important thing for kids to do. Helps you grow, helps you learn. I've got a set of things that I need your help with and we're going to sit down and each one of you can take something you really like, but then you've also got to take some things you like less. We're going to sort out who does what. And if the kid pushes back, you say, you know what? Yeah, absolutely. I understand you don't want to. We should have started this long ago. You wouldn't have been complaining if I'd started you at five and here you are. My bad, but... Let's get on with it. You know, you acknowledge your mistake, but you don't dwell on it and get all overly apologetic for it because they need to see that we're in charge, that we're setting expectations and boundaries. And they might grumble when you first put that screwdriver in their hand or ask them to get on a ladder and do something. Uh, But usually, I, I asked how did it play out because usually after a human spends some time making something, fixing something, handling something, dealing with something, they feel competent because they've done something. It's the antithesis of being overparented to actually get to put your hands on a screwdriver and unscrew some screws and, and and complete a task without a parent hovering over you and handling it for you or checking in constantly or micromanaging. Our kids are hungry to prove they can do things. And so when we actually make them do things and step back and they do the things, all of a sudden that human that little human child is feeling some agency. Like, I did that. Job well done. You could see them kind of dusting off their hands and, and beaming with pride. Like, I handled that. If you give them too small a task and praise, praise, praise the heck out of them, their psyche says, be quiet, lady. Be quiet, man. I didn't do that. You know, don't make such a big deal. It was like infinitesimally small, this thing you asked me to do. Oh, my gosh. You opened a can of peanut butter. Congratulations. Like, it. No, no, <laughs> okay. No, stop give them an actual task to do, walk away, let them do it. And just a brief thank you. Thanks. I appreciate it. You took care of that. Move on. I love that. They want our approval. They want to be recognized when they do things, but they don't want this wildly blown out of proportion praise for some tiny little thing because they they know and you know your praise is overblown and that doesn't help anybody.
1: We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey there, it's Debbie. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to TiltParenting.com slash club. That's TiltParenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside.
3: Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense.
1: Would you say that that's a universal desire for humans in general to, to feel that sense of, you know, I'm just wondering if people are listening and saying, well, my child is never, you know, doesn't seem to be interested in, in feeling that or doing anything to help. Is it, is it that we have beaten that out of them or, or hovered over them so much?
0: think Think about our, you know, you can think about our current year, our decade, our century, our era, But go back in time. Go back 500 years. Go back a thousand years. Go back in the present to cultures that are far less "quote unquote" advanced than us. There are plenty of communities, plenty of different cultures around the planet where folks are still hunters and gatherers. You know, they're still having to, you know, find the food they're going to eat and make it and and cook it and handle, you know, the upkeep of the home. That isn't about Teslas and technology. It's about kind of the basic just getting through a day and and eating and sleeping and caring for one another, right? Mm -hmm. And in those cultures, small children help out. They help out with food preparation. They help tend fires. They help look after small children, younger children. They pitch in. It's just what humans have always done. We have always, up until recently is my point, been useful. We have put ourselves to work and we have gotten things done just in order to survive, But now we're in this much more evolved place. Turns out that sitting sitting down all the time, just working at a computer, being served constantly by other humans, but not really putting in the sweat equity ourselves. I'm not an anthropologist. I'm not a psychologist. So the people who know far more about this than I am, but I have read a lot of people's work, which suggests this is dulling our sense of self as humans. We feel good when we get out there and sweat some and make something happen. We feel good when we chop wood. We feel good when we stack logs. We feel good when we create a wall out of bricks or a wall out of of wood. When we make things with our hands, we feel we have a purpose. And it's not to say that we lack a purpose if our work is white collar and we never have to chop wood or stack bricks. But the point is that there is something intrinsic in our nature as humans that wants to make things, create things, you know, sort of have the satisfaction of achievement and accomplishment. And there's nothing like hands-on work that gives you that sense of achievement because it's concrete. It's different than, Oh, I created a spreadsheet. Look at it. It's awesome. I mean, we can feel a sense of achievement from that, but it's not quite the same satisfaction as, as that, um, that physical achievement of a job completed. I am way out of my wheelhouse now with this answer. But this is what I have learned. And I believe in it so strongly. I see kids who are just, they're just handled and managed. And all they have to do is sit there and be driven from place to place. And we do have high expectations. They have to work hard, you know, to get the right grades that we want them to have. And they have to be on that team that we want them to be on. So they get into the right college or whatever. I mean, it's not like they're lazy, But there is so much of their lives that is managed, planned, constructed, perfected, fixed, handled for them. And that deprives them of feeling the basic agency humans need to have in order to be healthy and whole humans. And a lack of agency, that lack of sense of this is my life and I am responsible and I will do tasks and they will be completed by me, a low sense of agency contributes to higher rates of anxiety and depression. It's all connected.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: So, okay, I want to talk. I, I want to be cognizant of the time here, but I, I want to talk sorry, a little I told bit. You I was long-winded. Oh, no,
0: I love gonna, it though. I'm, I'm is... going to go for my short answers <laughs> now. We're the short answer <laughs> session people. It's all good. Yeah, we'll have the rapid fire. Rapid um, fire.
1: I did want to just ask you about advocacy. You know, you talk a lot about the importance of parents not stepping in, and you know intervening with coaches or teachers and and that's something i know you experienced in your your role at stanford and and i think as parents of again atypical kids we're we're often reluctant advocates but we find ourselves in that role do you have yeah. any thoughts about how to transfer yeah. or bolster our kids advocacy skills self advocacy well, yeah.
0: yeah so the first thought is really this philosophical umbrella over all of this which is Folks, like it or not, we're going to be dead one day. And we hope we die before our kids do, right? None of us wants our kids to predecease us. So if the universe unfolds as we want it to, we die first. And our fervent hope is that when we are gone, our offspring can survive without us. Now, that's necessary for all mammals. That's our that's what we do as mammals. We are with our offspring until they can fend for themselves. Now, as humans, hopefully they can fend for themselves by 18, 20, 25, 39, whatever you think adulthood is these days, right? But we might still live near them and with them, but we know, hey, my kid's got it. You know, my grown son or daughter or whatever can handle earning money, paying bills, being in relationships, taking care of a house, household, you know, et cetera. All right. So that's the point. We're, we're successful as parents, barring significant special needs, when our offspring can actually stand on their own two feet or make their way on their own, all right? So given that that's our goal, given that's our purpose, then we have to dial back to the present moment of today and say, what am I doing today in order to instill more independence, more skills in my kid? Rather than fostering a dependence on me. So, for every child with every skill, there's an opportunity to learn and grow or to be overly cared for, which is the sort of opposite. When it comes to challenging uh, situations with authority figures, you know, there's a teacher that um, has given a grade or an assignment the kid doesn't understand, a grade that people are unhappy with, or uh, an assignment that's hard to understand is a coach that's not giving a kid enough playing time or enough attention or what, whatever the case may be. Our instinct is to go and handle that. What we need to be doing is talking with our kid and saying, you know, if you'd like, if you're not happy with that situation, we can talk about what might happen differently. And then together we can go and talk to the teacher or coach. And together is kind of that first step away from the parent doing it all by themselves. Go together. Let your kid be there listening to you. Advocate for them with respect, but also being an advocate. And then we have to transfer the I do it with you to I watch you do it, okay? So I'm actually here now explaining a four-step method for teaching any kid any skill, which applies to talking to authority figures, but also making a meal or crossing the street. First, you do it for them. Second, you do it with them. The third step is you watch them do it. So now they're doing the bulk of the work, but you're still there in case. In case, you need to pipe up and say, and, blah, 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 blah. Or, wait a minute, buddy, you can't cross the street yet. There's a garbage truck and there's there's a car hiding behind that garbage truck. You're still there with your authority, you know, in case. And then finally, step four, they can do it independently. So we are on this journey to teach our kids through step one, two, three, and four, how to ultimately do things all by themselves. So if your kid has not is, is seven and has not yet spoken up for themselves with a teacher when there's a concern, it's time for you to start letting your kid show up with you as you do it. And then you talk to the kid afterward and say, next time when something like that comes up, you'll be able to do it uh, to do the talking and I'll be there with you if you like but ultimately one day you'll be able to do it for yourself okay this is a four-step method I learned from a friend of mine here in Palo Alto Stacy Ashland who's an amazing mom but Stacy's got two kids one developing typically and one with significant special needs from birth and Stacy taught me this four-step method which I with her permission, I put in my book. First, you do it for them, whatever it is. Then you do it with them. Then you watch them do it. And then they can do it independently. And for anyone who wants more on this, come to my website, com. I'm sure Debbie will put the link in the notes. And right up on the first page of the website, I I talk about this four-step method, and there's even a little link to an animation created by the magazine The Atlantic that uh, demonstrates visually in a cartoon format, it's really clever, the four-step method for teaching any kid any skill.
1: It's so great because it isn't timeline dependent. I, I love that. And even yeah, crossing the street is something we're still working on. Um right. but, I, but I, I love being able to apply that. So okay, um, I have so many more questions and we're gonna wrap this up. So maybe someday when you're when your new book's coming out, um, we'll have you back on the show. But before we say goodbye. I also, I I need to at least mention your book, Real American, which I read and loved. And if you want to just take a minute to tell us about that and your new project and where people can connect with you.
0: Awesome. Thanks. And in the meantime, I'll work on being not so (laughs) long-winded. My second book is a memoir on race, on being Black and biracial in a country where Black lives weren't meant to matter. It is a prose poetry memoir, which means I've written it for the ear as much as for the eye. I try to make the language sing on the page and have a rhythm and movement. And it's a quick read, but a very vulnerable share. And if you are interested in issues of race in our country, in our moment, please check it out. My third book is a sequel to How to Raise an Adult called How to Be an Adult, uh, an offering to 18 to 35-year-olds about being an adult. I think we've made it look terribly unpleasant and too many of them say, I don't want to hashtag adult. And my book is an offering to them. I hope a compassionate offering that says, yes, you can. And you want to, because it's amazing to actually be an adult. And here are narratives of a bunch of other people that I've interviewed that demonstrate how people are going about adulting. And if you want to catch up with me, uh, keep in touch with me for the longer term, come to my website, julielifcotthames.com. You'll find links to all my social media on there. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And I have an occasional newsletter you can sign up for. So yeah, let's stay in touch. I'm always um, delighted to hear from readers. That tends to happen, particularly on my Facebook pages. Uh, So how to raise an adult has its own page, check it out and uh, look forward to being in touch.
1: Thank you so much. And yeah, listeners I'll have links to all of Julie's info on the show notes pages. Definitely check out her books and her, and her big Ted talk and, and her small Ted talks as well. Her TEDx's. Um, Julie, thank you so much for taking the time and for this conversation. I'm really just grateful to bring your voice to the show.
0: Well, Debbie, thank you. I think the hardest part about parenting is recognizing that this little being is entitled to live their own life. Mm -hmm. They're not our pet. They're not our project. They're not our trophy for a job well done. They are a separate human being from us. And when we can actually act with humility and accept the fact that God or the universe or whatever you believe has handed us this child, that this is a task that we must assume with great care and humility, Uh, we've got to help them become themselves rather than act as if somehow their life is simply a reflection of our efforts.
1: So beautifully said. See, listeners, now you know why I wanted her on the show so badly. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Julie. Take care. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, including links to Julie Lithgott-Hames' website, her books, her TED Talk, How to Raise Successful Kids, and all the other resources we discussed, you'll find them at tillparenting.com slash session 140. And a quick reminder that Julie is one of the speakers at Zen Parenting's annual conference this year that's in Chicago on March 8th and 9th. So definitely check that out. You can still get tickets at ZenParentingRadio.com. If you get value out of this podcast, please consider signing up for my Patreon campaign to make a small monthly contribution to help me cover the costs of production. Even two dollars a month makes a difference. To sign up, go to Patreon.com/tiltParenting, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can also find a link on the Tilt Parenting website on any of the show notes pages. And don't forget to leave a rating or a review or both for Tilt Parenting on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so already. Thank you so much. And thanks again for listening. For more information on Tilt Parenting, visit www.tiltparenting.com.